Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm in a little bit of a different location here today. We are continuing our series on trying to figure out what is wrong with all of these wrongful convictions that you keep hearing about in the news. It's absolutely crazy. We have two ladies on here today who are running amazing clinics. They're joining forces to solve these problems. First, we have Trisha Bushnell as the director of the Midwest Innocent Project. Say that three times fast, the director of the Midwest Innocence Project and Megan Crane of the MacArthur Justice Center. Their backgrounds are, are varied and quite extensive, and I want them to introduce themselves to you personally. So let's bring them onto the show right now. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one on one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Hello there. Hey, How are you both? Doing well. Well, thanks for being here on Open Mic. I've been reading about your backgrounds. I've been reading about this great work. You've just had a, a, a got somebody out of prison last week that I want to hear about. But Trisha, let's start with you. Give us a little bit about uh, your background and the clinic that you're currently um, in charge of right now. Sure. So I'm director at the Midwest Innocence Project. We are a nonprofit organization based in Kansas City, Missouri, that represents people who were convicted of crimes they didn't commit uh, and works to bring them home, get um, get them out, and change the system to prevent that from happening from anyone else in the first place. Our organization works in five states. So we've got Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and Arkansas. Um, and we work with a lot of partners. So um, we're super excited. We're gonna, you're gonna hear a little bit more about how we've just started a new partnership with MacArthur Justice Center, but we also partner with the University of Missouri School of Law, the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Law, the AU School of Law, and the Iowa State uh, Public Defenders Wrongful Conviction Division. So we work with a lot of different folks to get as many resources as we can to, to get people home. That's amazing. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback from somebody here. So I apologize to our listeners, but you know, when we're, doing it from home and we're doing it through Zoom, uh, it's what we got to deal with. Now, Trisha, you are an attorney too, correct? I am, and I do actively represent clients, yeah. So I'm actually technically the executive and legal director, but it's the... All right, well, you got that part out, which, you know, us lawyers, we need to uh, yeah. do that. <laughs> Megan Crane, tell me about you. Well, and not to defer back to Trisha momentarily, but I didn't hear her say, maybe I missed it, but she's also currently the president of the Innocence Network across the country. So she's the president of the network that is in charge of coordinating all the projects in all the states. Which is a huge job, I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> she I wears many all hats. hats. Um, all right, Megan, what are you up to? Yeah, um, I am here in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm the co-director of our Missouri office of MacArthur Justice Center. Um, the MacArthur Justice Center is also a legal nonprofit, um, but we have historically focused on civil rights litigation. So like the Innocence Project, one of our main focuses is holding the state accountable for when they do bad deeds, when there is misconduct. Um, but we have typically done that in the civil context, whether it's civil rights lawsuits under the statute 1983 or civil rights lawsuits on behalf of exonerees, but seeking compensation and seeking to hold the bad actors in their case accountable. Um, what we are super excited about is that through this new partnership with Trisha and the Midwest Innocence Project, which is called our MacArthur Justice Center Wrongful Conviction Project, we are now entering the arena of litigating to exonerate people in the criminal post-conviction context. Um, we've done a couple one-off cases of these 
throughout the years. I haven't with MacArthur, but my colleagues have in the past. But this is the first time our organization is singularly focused on the laborious labor and time and resource intensive work of getting the person out of prison before they then can file the civil suit to hold the state actors accountable. Um, so we're thrilled that this partnership worked out and we think it's gonna really increase capacity for this work here in Missouri and hopefully decrease the number of years that the wrongfully convicted here have to spend behind bars. So tell me, I'm confused a little bit before we even dive in. So the the litigation that you were that you were discussing, how does that differ from a normal uh, 6500 motion that has to be filed right away? Not right away. That has to be filed uh, for a, for some relief from judgment. You're you're making it sound different, and I'm ignorant to that. So what? Tell mm -hmm. me, how is it different? Um, well, I think it depends state to state. Um, I, because I have litigated at least one case and, and as a student, some additional cases in Michigan, I'm familiar with the 6500 motion. That is one of the forms of post-conviction litigation I'm talking about. Okay. Um, they're called different things in different states here in Missouri. It's called a Rule 91 state habeas petition. Okay. Um, but that is typically the vehicle we're using in state courts when we try to overturn someone's wrongful conviction through... I was calling it criminal post-conviction litigation, but that's kind of a broad umbrella term for the motions we might file in the state court or in the federal court. And they just have different names state to state. The, the different animal that I was referencing, which I think I'm sure you're familiar with, Mike, is the civil rights lawsuit that might come afterwards once someone is officially exonerated and their wrongful conviction is overturned. Many exonerees, if there is clear misconduct in their case, um, will have the ability and the right to file a civil suit against the state actors and perhaps the, the county or the police department or the city um, and hopefully get some financial compensation for the wrongs that were done to them. And every state there is different. Some have some decent Absolutely. laws. I haven't seen any great laws. Um, and maybe we could get some really great federal laws if, if we ever get our act together uh, in Congress. But because, you know, like in Michigan, it's a $50,000 max. I've seen some states where there is a max, which would probably be on the better side, right? With having no max where you could sue in full compensation. Um, so, but I mean, that's a, that's a different conversation. So Tricia, tell me about this, um, tell me about this merger um, or partnership. Is it a merger? Is it a partnership? And how can it help get more people out of prison who are wrongfully convicted? Yeah, well, it, it is a partnership. So we're still independent organizations. Um, but just like we do with all of our other partners, we're going to be working cases together <laughs> and to have sort of an understanding of what that looks like. So, you know, the Midwest Innocence Project works in five states. We now have partners in a number of those different states. And at MIP, we do all of the intake. So if somebody is claiming innocence and wants assistance on overturning their conviction, they apply to the Midwest Innocence Project. And uh, uh, staff at MIP begins this very long, rigorous intake process. And then we start working with our partners when we're able to place them to be investigated uh, and litigated. And so what that means now that MacArthur's come on, MacArthur is one of the partners where we will be able to place uh, applicants in their in their cases to be investigated and litigated by Megan in the wrongful conviction division at MacArthur. Um, and what that means is we have more lawyers, we have more resources, we have more people. Um, we can move more cases uh, more quickly, and that will hopefully bring relief. Um, what's what's particularly important about about the partnership with MacArthur 
is that they are based in St. Louis. So um, at MIP, even though we're in five states, the vast majority of our applications actually come out of two states. That's Missouri uh, and Arkansas. And in Missouri, we have about um, 400 people at any given moment who are waiting for assistance. And about half of those people are specifically out of St. Louis City or St. Louis County. So to have um, not only additional lawyers and resources, but to have them be based in St. Louis, um, where we know we have such a great need, um, is a huge um, boon for folks who are wrongfully convicted and waiting to have their case reviewed. And what do you, I mean, that's a, I mean, you're, you're covering five states and the majority is coming out of a single city. What's, what are the trends that you're seeing that, that are coming out of St. Louis? I mean, that sounds like a, that sounds like a powder keg right there. I mean, it, it is, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but we now, you know, we know that state misconduct, prosecutor misconduct, law enforcement misconduct is a leading cause of wrongful conviction, right? In, in more than 50% of all of the cases that came out in the last national uh, re uh, registry of exonerations. St. Louis is one of those places. Um, there have been historic problems with law enforcement there. Uh, you can watch the battles that occur between law enforcement and the reform prosecutors that were elected both in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, right? The first black prosecutors in both of those jurisdictions, the things that law enforcement have to say. Um, you know, in the Midwest Innocence Project, we're partnered with uh, the law firm of Morgan Pilot and Lathrop Gage. We represent a man where the prosecutor in St. Louis City has done the internal investigation that reviewed and showed the misconduct um, in their own files. Um, and including our requests for that information, which were continually denied. And she has joined and said, filed a motion saying our client is innocent and he should come home. Um, and, you know, the, the politics around that, and we see that in, in places all around the country. St. Louis is one of them. Um, we can say the same thing about other places in our jurisdiction, Kansas City, Kansas, Wyandotte County. We can talk about Chicago, right? We can talk about Baltimore. We can talk about places all around the country where we know there are historic problems. Um, coming out of law enforcement and prosecutor's offices. And then you start to see those when you look at where the applications are coming from. You can just track them pretty clearly. And, and what well, kind of things, oh, go ahead, Becky. I was just a quick jump in there and comparing to Chicago, and I think we could compare to Detroit too. One thing I want to flag about St. Louis, I grew up in St. Louis. I only recently moved back um, about three years ago to join the MacArthur office here. But I do think a difference with St. Louis is that it hasn't quite had the same reckoning yet with this reality that Chicago certainly has had and that I think Detroit has started to have. You know, the leading, the head prosecutor in St. Louis for nearly two decades up until a couple of years ago when Kim Gardner was reelected has one of the top rates of misconduct in the country. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows that here. You know, she's still an exalted figure. Um, we have many pre-identified bad apples in the St. Louis City Police Department. Kim Gardner, the new circuit attorney, has 75 police on an exclusion list, meaning she won't put them on the stand. She won't um, sign off on search warrants for them. Um, and we don't have that big a police force. So 75 is a significant percentage. Um, but instead of the public here reckoning with that reality, the new circuit attorney is demonized for making that list. So I think it is a difference in St. Louis that there's still kind of a, a coming to coming to terms and facing yeah. this this reality of misconduct and corruption in our right. criminal justice system here. You know, Detroit was under federal uh, oversight for years and years and years. Our current police chief, James Craig, by all accounts, is doing a really really good job. And mm -hmm. the Wayne County prosecutor has a conviction integrity unit in mm -hmm. place, which are mm -hmm. people are getting out 
and, yeah. and she's doing a really good job. Um, so I, those things, I mean, for most cities, I think those, I don't know about the federal oversight, but things need to happen. So we've had lots of people on the show from professors at U of M, uh, Professor Primus, mm -hmm. and, and, and who I don't know if you know, are familiar with. She was uh, my professor for criminal procedure. I she, love her. She was amazing. <laughs> and, and so, we, you know, we've had lots of experts about what can be done. And we've spent lots of times looking at the, you know, at where it begins with the, you know, the, 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 the attorneys who are assigned to these cases and the things, the great lengths that Michigan is doing to try to get people um, charged with something, the correct counsel, so they're not just, you know, railroaded through the whole system. But tell me like, you know, so our listeners are familiar with those types of things. What are you guys finding that are, that that's working or are you, or, or to prevent future problems or your, is your focus more on getting the people out who were wrongfully convicted? And I think they're both important. Um, and so maybe you're doing both, but you know, what, somebody take me through that. In our office, I can speak about our office and, you know, Megan, you can talk about MacArthur because I think there's really amazing, amazing things that are coming out of MacArthur. Uh, in our office, you know, we work when somebody is exonerated. We also work to change the policy about whatever the leading cause of wrongful conviction was for them. So if you look, for example, in the state of Kansas, um, where we've had a number of folks who come home recently, as a result of them coming home, we were able to pass, you know, recording of custodial interrogations. We were able to pass eyewitness identification reform. Um, Kansas also became a state that provides compensation for people who are wrongfully convicted when we never had that before as a result of folks coming home and us really saying you need to reckon um, with that. You know, and we are we are looking at this right now with the, the client who came home last week, Mr. Pete Coons, was convicted based on a jailhouse informant. Uh, and that's what we're going to be talking and bringing about change in Kansas as well, is to say, look, we know that that's what convicted Pete Coons and, and certainly other innocent Kansans. We need to change that. Um, we do that in all of the states that we work in. We've passed a number of, of, of legislative initiatives in every state, I will say, except for Missouri. And, and we have to just talk about Missouri and what those, those things are. Um, because when we talk about change, we can talk about how we bring someone home and how those processes are. And we can talk about legislative changes, but we need to talk about transparency changes. We need to talk about what it means. Um, you know, we're talking about St. Louis and law enforcement, what it means that police unions uh, have so much power uh, that they get to investigate themselves right before anyone else gets to investigate them, that we don't have transparency of how law enforcement are disciplined and moved around and certified and decertified. Um, those are things that we need to be talking about and doing, but we also need to understand the role that every state actor has and plays. In our office, we always constantly ask people, do you know your prosecutor? Uh, and when we say, do you know your prosecutor, do you know your attorney general? Um, here in Missouri, we are litigating the case of Lamar Johnson where the circuit attorney agrees Lamar's innocent on, based on her own investigation, filed a motion um, for a new trial for him, and the attorney general has stepped in and said, no, you don't have the power to do that. The state doesn't have the power to do that. Does not deny that the client is innocent, but is instead forcing him to sit there for years as they litigate this out. I mean, those are the real questions of who should have that power making, who should have that authority, and why would we ever have a system that allows people to impede justice? Um, and so those are the things that I think about when I think about what citizens should be um, asking their legislatures at any moment. But Megan and MacArthur are also doing some really incredible work on. I want to hear from Megan in a second, but but. I just wrote down four things. Number one, why aren't you in Michigan? We're in, we're in the Midwest. Come on, we are the queen. We're in the heart of the Midwest. We need you in Michigan. 
You have amazing organ innocence organizations in Michigan right now, right? So you have the, the, the University of Michigan, the Michigan Innocence Project, and then the state uh, appellate defender organization has an innocence organization there as well. So you have wonderful things going but on. But I don't know, who do we have in Michigan that's advocating the legislature for change? I don't, who do we have in Michigan doing that? Um, well, so there's a couple Dave things. Dave does that sometimes. Yeah. Dave does that, and Dave Moran at the Michigan Innocence Project. He's a busy guy, though, getting people out of prison. <laughs> well, we're also, I mean, the same as you said for our organization as well. Um, you know, and then we all work closely with the Innocence Project, which is what most people are familiar with, right, which is a DNA-only project based out of New York. But that does have a policy department that we work with closely as well and would work in places like Michigan, does work with with us in Kansas, um, Arkansas, Nebraska, Iowa. So, you know, part of why the network is so important is we're able to really bolster all of our resources together uh, and bring in, you know, other folks who are convicted based on those issues from other states who can come and talk to legislatures about why it's so important and they can say that. Um, so I love Tricia how you how you described you know I, I take this like if something bad happens in a civil case you know why did it happen and how is it not going to happen again and I love that you're finding these problems in, in these cases and you're going to the legislature and say look what what just happened to my client we need to change this law and and it sounds like you're you're getting some amazing traction with with the legislature in, in Kansas that and the governor who are signing mm -hmm. these bills into law um, helping protect future people. How, how, I mean, are you finding that they're receptive to, to, to your requests? I, I, I think so. I think the biggest issue that comes up for every legislature generally is, is funding, right? How are they going to fund whatever change that you're asking in any given moment? But I think that the vast majority of people, the vast majority of Americans, at least, and I would say people around the, the world have a real fundamental sense of fairness. Right. And wh why would we let this happen to someone when we could fix it? Um, and also, why would we want the state to pay to incarcerate the wrong person? Why would we want to hurt victims who have to go through this process over and over again as we figure out that the wrong person was wrongly convicted and maybe that that wrong person went on to commit other crimes? Right. Everyone really just understands the complete devastation that happens as soon as they talk to someone who is affected by this. Um, and so I think everyone wants to do the right thing. Unfortunately, politics. Um, isn't always about doing the right thing. And so they have to find their way, right? You know, right. And, and, and you mentioned the jailhouse informants. Every case that I've dove deep into on this wrongful conviction stuff, you know, the, the four um, exonerees that I've interviewed on open mic. I mean, there's always a, a, you know, except for one, there's a jailhouse informant. Mm -hmm. These are the scummiest people I've ever met. I never met them, but I read about them and I wouldn't want to meet them. I mean, they'll just lie to save you know, their own asses. And it's so obvious uh, what, the, what the prosecutors are doing and what the detectives and, and, and police are doing. So what kind of laws can you get? Have you been successful in trying to keep, keep that corruption to a minimum? Yeah, so we did just pass um, a jailhouse reform bill in Nebraska. We're working on one in Kansas. And you can see some around the country. Uh, New Jersey also has done this kind of reform. But the, the two really big things that we look for is, one, asking for some sort of independent um, piece of evidence that would show the reliability of the jailhouse informant's testimony. So we have reliability hearings for other kinds of evidence, right, scientific evidence and other things that come in. Why aren't we having reliability evidence for jailhouse informants when they're incentivized? Just have some something that corroborates that what they're saying is true and accurate. Um, so those that's one thing that we're asking for. And the other thing that we're really asking for are centralized databases so that prosecutors, when they use informants, 
from all around the state have to enter it into this database and they always know what deals someone has received, right? What they received in exchange for and how many cases that individual has testified in so that they can meet their Brady obligations and give it over to the defense. Um, what we've seen in some cases is even good prosecutors who want to give that over may not know that this in the jailhouse informant has testified in you know 25 other cases around the state because that's not within their jurisdiction. Um, but certainly there are also prosecutors who try to hide that. Uh, and if it's in a centralized location and everyone could know that, um, good prosecutors won't want to use those informants. Uh, and we'll be able to undermine those who would be nefarious and try to hide the use of them um, because of that centralized location. And have you gotten those three um, asks passed in any one state? Um, New Jersey has reliability hearings. Uh, and I'm not quite sure if I can remember if they have the, the database because I'd have to go refer to the, the organizations that work there. But in Nebraska, we have we do have the database that is being uh, implemented. That they will have to do that tracking system. That, I mean, that's amazing. That would have solved. I mean, that would have solved the cases that I've I've investigated and researched um, right there. That's just amazing work. I, I wonder, and I don't know how to even find out if they're trying to get that passed in Michigan right now. But that is great work. All right, Megan, your turn. What's going on? Uh, tell me some initiatives that you guys are working on to, to fix these problems right now. Sure, thank you. Um, well, at MacArthur, I think we have a couple different focuses across the country, but also here in Missouri. Here in Missouri specifically, um, we've been involved in a couple different class action lawsuits that's actually against the Missouri public defender system. Um, we, we, we love public defenders. <laughs> we love criminal defense attorneys. We don't want to have to sue them. Um, it's just that there has been such a long-standing public defense crisis in Missouri and all other avenues of uh, addressing that problem at this point have been, have been tried and failed. And so this lawsuit was kind of the last resort. And the public defender system is run by fantastic people who are trying to do the right thing, but have just not been able to get the state to do the right thing and give them the money, like the bare minimum of money you need to adequately, bare minimum of adequate representation. Um, the reality here is that we're ranked for, in terms of our indigent defense at the bottom of the 50 states. Wow. Um, public defenders are repeatedly and for years put in the position of potentially being sued or disbarred or penalized for ethical violations because it is simply impossible for them to meet their ethical obligations and constitutional obligations of representing an indigent criminal defend defendant with the number of cases they have and the limited resources that they have. So we have class action lawsuits. First, it was in federal court. Now there's a suit in state court um, suing them for their failure to meet their constitutional and ethical obligations. And, and the hope is that in the end, we can come to an agreement about the bare minimum standards that must be met, and it'll force the state's hand that they'll have to fund this if there is a, federal, a court order in place. Um, I know, Mike, I listened to some of your previous podcasts, and this has been a focus of yours, the truly abysmal state of representation for many of the people who are ultimately exonerated. Um, sometimes that comes from private attorneys. You know, my my Detroit case, Devante Sanford, I'm sure you're familiar now with Robert Slamica, which is just such an appropriate name, I think, for, for his attorney, who was ultimately disbarred um, and did nothing to represent him. And in fact, Devante pled guilty in the middle of his trial because it became clear his attorney was going to literally do nothing. And so he may as well take, take a deal. 
Um, but it also comes from the public defender system, especially here in Missouri. And I want to be clear that for the vast majority of cases, I do not think that is the fault of the individual attorneys. I think people become public defenders because they are passionate about this cause, um, but they're working with their hands and feet tied behind their back. I mean, there's there's nothing they can do with the resources that they're being given. The other thing in Missouri that I didn't mention is many of our counties have wait lists. So, and that's been the solution adopted by the state when there aren't resources to give the attorneys to represent the people. So people will sit in jails for months, for years, before even meeting with their attorney. And sometimes that's on very low level charges. So you might spend more time in jail waiting for your attorney to be appointed than you would even spend if you were ultimately convicted and sentenced for the crime. Don't get me started, um, on, don't get me started on the bail problem here. <laughs> Please, oh man, I, we just had the bail project, uh, a couple of the people awesome. from the bail project on a podcast a month or two ago, I mean, I mean, we could spend another five hours on that. Uh, these people should not be in prison. And I was reading an article recently, or jail, I should say, but that, that COVID has been a big helper with mm-hmm. all this, which I was very pleased to see that the jails are are not empty. But some of them, here. letting people out. Yeah. And I'm so, I mean, finally, at least we have the bail project, which is now in cities across the country and doing really, really incredible work. Um, but Detroit, they, people don't even know they're here. They don't, mm-hmm. doesn't cost them anything. They make one phone call, um, and, and they're out and, and, and it gets paid back once, once the matter is resolved. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. what a wonderful organization that is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. so you, so you heard, I don't know if you heard the podcast with John Shea, the Michigan, um, I didn't. So he's, he's running or he's in charge of the, I don't remember the technical name of the Michigan um, organization through the state that's trying to fix the public defender system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lawsuit that you're talking about, I mean, are you gaining traction on that to try to get some change or is it in the throes of it right now? It's it's actually going to trial next week. So uh, TBD, check back with us. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I try to do here is like, if there's people who are facing uh, a charge. You know, this isn't just for professionals. I have lots of clients in Detroit who listen and, and I've gotten lots of feedback around the country, you know, and, and I struggle with it. I struggle with even asking this question, but you know, these people are usually poor. They're uneducated. They can't afford their own attorneys. They're handed an attorney who is an attorney. They have a, they have a license and they are, they don't, there's really no way to know. You can't really go on Google and check their star rating, right? Um, you know, you can't, and, and, and every case that I've looked at, all the attorneys, I don't think there's one that hasn't been disbarred, reprimanded, grieved um, after the convictions. And these people after, and after these people have done many years of, of prison, there's not, there's not like a watchdog group where somebody can get charged, talk to their lawyer, Tell them about an alibi defense, for example, and they, they ignore it. The judges don't care in a lot of these cases. The prosecutors certainly don't care. What can these people do? I mean, there's, I don't, is there an answer to that question? I, well, I mean, I think the question isn't what can the, the, the folks who are defendants do can do, but what should we be doing, right, as citizens of the system? Because the, the reality is we cannot put more burden on people who are in such an unfair and 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 untenable situation, right? So, I mean, I think what we think about is why, when you're talking about, um, there's two, there's both public defenders and prosecutors who aren't held accountable for their actions, right? And part of that is because who governs lawyers? 
lawyers govern lawyers, right? <laughs> so either one, people don't file bar complaints or they do and lawyers don't want to do anything about it because they imagine, well, what if that were me? What if I, you know, and we've all go through times in our lives where things are awful. And so sometimes you can see someone who is ineffective and you can think, man, were they going through a divorce and losing their house and all of these things where they may have been distracted, right? And we should find them ineffective but maybe they should lose their bar license. And so that's what happens is when we go to bar complaint authorities is they say, well, it's fine, right? Uh, and so there are questions about that. What, what should be that accountability? And then I think there are very real questions about what, who we create as lawyers and who we invite into the system. And I say that, as, you know, my name is Trisha Rojo Bushnell. I am one of 2% of all lawyers that are Latina, right? And when we create a public defender association or we create a legal community that is filled with predominantly white folks and predominantly white folks who come from middle class or upper class backgrounds, we are making it where we are not able to communicate clearly and have cultural barriers that keep us from hearing our clients and hearing what's happening. I think of so many cases where the alibi was said and not investigated because someone didn't understand it because they thought it sounded crazy, right? Um, the very first case I ever worked on when I was a, a law student, it was a death penalty case where our client was innocent. Um, he he was selling drugs on the side of the road and he had pawned the drugs for the car that the real perpetrator had stolen from the victim. And no, the public defenders couldn't understand that, that people would exchange, lease a car in essence, right, for the use of drugs because they, they don't come from a background where they understand not having a car. So I think we are also in a really critical point where we have to be reckoning with systemic racism's role in this, not just in prosecuting people, not just in convicting people, but in keeping people out of positions to represent other people of color, right? We have we have court reporters who are predominantly white who don't understand the African-American vernacular, who are transcribing the words incorrectly that are coming out of someone's mouth. And I just think, I, I cannot say what else should this defendant be doing and more how many ways can we oppress them is really yeah, no. the way that I think about it. Your point is well taken. I mean, it's a, it was a bad question, but it's, 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 I don't have an answer when people come to me. And the other bad question, the other thing that you just touched on Patricia, is, you know, when I tell my kids and family and clients and people watch these podcasts, well, was the prosecutor charged, held accountable? Mm -hmm. I, one of the cases that I, that we talked about on one of my podcasts, it turns out that the judge and the prosecutor were having a romantic relationship. Neither one of them ever held accountable. One's still a judge, the other's still a prosecutor. Like, you know, is anybody ever held accountable? And at least in Michigan, we have governmental immunity is, is, is clear. Um, you can't really pierce that. Nobody, very, the cops aren't even being held accountable. Cops who are putting bad lineups. Bad, jailhouse niches that they know. I mean, we have a case, we, we covered a case where the uh, prosecutor, the detective left the facts in front of a jailhouse informant, left the room, let him read it, let him testify. Guy does many, many years in, in prison until this jailhouse did, comes around and says, yeah, this is what happened. Did anything happen to the prosecutor and the, and the detective? No, never. So, I've been following the, what happened to the two key bad actor cops in Devante Sanford's case. And from what I can tell, one of them's still on Detroit, Detroit police force. He has, I think, been changed to a different department, but much, much later, like as in only a year or two ago. And the other one who is, has now admitted 
he wholly manufactured the key linchpin evidence that kept 14-year-old Devante in prison for a decade. Um, he went on to be the chief of police in two other Michigan jurisdictions, and I think is still the chief yeah. in, in one of those. He, did, no, he was in Highland Park last. What was his name again? Um, Tolbert. Yeah, to, he was in uh, Highland Park, which is a suburb in Detroit, and I think that there was an uproar and that he got okay. he got fired, I believe. I Flint, Flint had the the benefit of having him for a while before Highland Park. Yeah. And, like, and I mean, the prosecutors right. become judges, right. right? So the prosecutor that, that uh, used a jailhouse informant and gave it all this exact same, the process that you're talking about in Missouri, in Ryan Ferguson's case, is now a judge, Judge Crane. He still sits there, right? Uh, Megan and I have a case where I, I represented one of the co-defendants as he was getting exonerated and Megan now represents one of the co-defendants in her civil case where it, we we won on what, what's called a young blood claim right that they destroyed evidence uh, and they'd used this informant that they hadn't disclosed to anyone to get this confession out of a co-defendant all of these things the prosecutor in that case is an Arkansas Supreme Court judge mm -hmm. and, and so you know these are the things that we we have to sort of bring to light because I think when we talk about them everyone's like that cannot be an system right like that's where but they're so protected. There's like no, there's no, I, I'm not seeing any good movement, at least in Michigan, I'll tell you that, um, holding these people accountable because they are going, they're just keeping going up in the ranks and nobody cares. And they move city. And, I mean, is Megan, is your organization like in the Devante Sanford? I mean, I think he got some compensation, but. He did. He was actually the first case. So you did ask about who's doing the legislative advocacy in Michigan. I know Dave Moran with some other partners in Michigan were the ones who advocated and got the Michigan state compensation bill passed. And, and obviously I think they and everyone wishes it was better and there wasn't the cap, but they got it passed, so good on them. And I think Devante was the first one to get an award under that bill. Um, so he got, uh, I think, I shouldn't be throwing out a number, but it was under $500,000, you know, it, was, it did not compensate for losing your childhood growing up in prison and a decade behind bars in an adult facility. Um, but, uh, sorry, the question, <laughs> I lost the thread of the question. So what's MacArthur doing for it though? Well, I'm just curious if you're, are, are you guys going in and even if the laws are against, which they are, yeah. and you know that they are bad cops, like in this, yeah. I, mean, I can- So the way MacArthur's taking that on is in, I've heard you talk about this before, but the qualified immunity setting. So that's a step further, right? What we're talking about right now is just being disciplined by their own institutions, which seems like it should be the more obvious and easier step to take than overcoming these big legal hurdles like qualified immunity. That needs to be happening. And it's part of why it is so incredibly frustrating to me that when circuit attorneys and prosecutors state take the step of making like an exclusion list, which not to say that's an easy thing to do, but that's a small step in what we're talking about. Right. It's not firing people. It's not disciplining them in other ways that affect their livelihood. It's just putting them on a list and saying, at least not me, I'm not going to take cases from you. And there is such a backlash here to that. And that infuriates me. Um, but MacArthur is focused on the legal side of it. What happens when you do sue the bad actors? And I've heard you talk about it, Mike. Most of the time, they are completely insulated and protected by this legal doctrine of qualified immunity. We won't get into the weeds of that because that's a whole nother show. And there's probably someone much smarter than me that can, should talk to you about it. Um, I can tell you someone within MacArthur you can talk to because our appellate and Supreme Court office in D.C., this is a key focus for them. 
Um, and they are working across the country to identify the best cases to be bringing qualified immunity cases up through the appellate courts to try to chip away at and ultimately take down this, this doctrine. Um, the good news is that it is an issue in which there is actually some bipartisan support. Um, a lot of conservative justices actually are troubled by qualified immunity also. Um, so I think there, there is reason to be optimistic about us making headway in that regard. The institutional and the political problem about terminating people, disciplining them is, is a different, is a separate one. Well, everybody's... Oh, go ahead, Trish. I say, the other thing to remember is, you know, that's talking about the the, the litigation strategy to, to change and end qualified immunity. But there is also a legislative strategy. Now, certainly not in our states. That's not what's happening. But around the country, you are seeing some jurisdictions, small and larger, looking at ending qualified immunity through legislative processes, particularly after the summer. Right. When we've seen how many how many folks, how many black folks who have been shot and killed by police were communities are now saying, wait, they cannot be held accountable because of this. And so I think that we may see some changes in the next legislative sessions from places, not in my region, but uh, somewhere else that may tackle. We gotta the get fact that we've had the Daily Show talking about it, and I've seen a lot of other pop culture play things doing features on qualified immunity, which makes me really happy. And, and they and managed I, to make it sexy and funny and interesting. So. Yeah, and I yell that viewers and fellow lawyers, and I don't do enough explaining. But for the lay people out there, just you know, when a judge or a prosecutor or even you know cops do bad things, the laws shield them from civil liability, from paying money, from being held about accountable criminally and civilly. And that's what we're talking about is trying to lower those shields. So if they, these really bad actors who locked up 14 year old Devante Sanford um, and, and the prosecutors and everybody who, who was complicit in that should be held accountably both civilly and criminally, in my opinion, and I'm sure in your guys' opinions, and hopefully, you know, the laws will change soon. Um, Trisha, I know before we run out of time, tell us, you know, you had something exciting happen in your office last week. You're in, you're, you're, you're right there in the heart of it right now. Just take me what happened to your client and the good news that you got last week, please. Sure. Um, so last week, client Olin Pete Coons was exonerated and released. Uh, the prosecutor dismissed all charges against him same day. A judge made his ruling from the branch same day after serving um, over 12 years wrongfully convicted for a crime he didn't commit. Um, it's a it's, it's a, like all cases, it's a tragedy and a complicated case. Um, he had been convicted of a double homicide or what, what the state had said was a double homicide that was actually turned out to be a murder-suicide. So um, Pete's father and sister had had a caregiver um, who was embezzling from his father and neglecting him um, and had uh, taken a number of his assets and Pete was suing her. And they were in these back and forth litigation after his father had died and passed away. Um, and essentially she then uh, killed her husband and killed herself and, and framed it to make it look like Pete did it by calling her mother and saying, um, Pete's here, he's, uh, he's threatening to, to kill us and he's taking the lawnmower. But what we now know is that the state had all of this evidence, one, that, it sh that she, she was going to be committing suicide. They had already been investigating her for embezzlement from her bank where she worked at. She'd stolen over $11,000 over the last 90 days. Uh, and there was a missing fourth bullet that the medical examiner, when we found it, working with the Conviction Integrity Unit, when it was discovered, um, the medical examiner changed his uh, manner of death to uh, murder-suicide. And most importantly, the jailhouse informant who was used to convict um, convict Mr. Coons, you know, 
all of the all of the tragedies that you hear in all these cases, all of the ways in which he had asked for a deal that weren't disclosed, all of the ways in which you know there were a number of letters that were written to the prosecutor, which he only disclosed two of, um, where he's talking about all of the things that he wants, that he tried to get a deal, another deal uh, against a different defendant when he didn't get something out of this, um, that the prosecutor abused what's called the Inquisition statute. Um, he threatened this uh, this snitch with jail time if he didn't say what he wanted him to say. So all of these things came out. Um, we had a week-long, four-day evidentiary hearing. At the end of it, the judge ruled from the bench, um, made those findings that the state had improperly suppressed all of that evidence. Uh, the prosecutor uh, dismissed the charges and Pete came home. I got chills. That's a great freaking result. It is. And, and how many, I mean, it's a long time. How many years did it take or months did it take when the day you heard of this person until he got out? Well, so this is what's an, an important discovery in that this is a case that actually came out of a conviction integrity unit uh, here in Wyandotte County, Kansas City, Kansas. So we just talked about St. Louis, right? And the two first black prosecutors elected there. In Wyandotte County, Mark Dupree is the first black prosecutor to have ever been elected in the entire state of Kansas. Uh, and then when our client Lamont McIntyre was exonerated a few years ago, when he agreed to join that motion and, and dismiss the charges that day, he founded the Commission Integrity Unit. And this is the first case that came out of that. So uh, wow. Mr. Mr. Coons had written to them, they started that investigation, and then we came on to sort of finish it, work it from the defense side and to present all of the evidence for the court. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a much quicker process, right? It was probably about a year and a half, two years, but it's still a long time. Mm-hmm. It's still a long time and that person's waiting. These conviction integrity units um, are so important. In my hometown of Oakland County, Michigan, you're going to be hearing, we, we just hired a, we just hired, we just voted in a very progressive prosecutor and her, one of her first tasks, I had her on the podcast, um, was going to be setting up a conviction integrity unit. The current prosecutor that she unseated, I interviewed on the podcast, has said, no need, we, we don't convict, uh, we don't want to Yeah. She got arrested. Karen McDonald is gonna is gonna take oath. I don't know when January sometime, and um, I volunteered to be on her board because I I think that these I mean I love Trisha that 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 it came from within. That is just when I first heard about this, and probably in a year now. These are relatively new units. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mind blowing that that they're hiring really good people within the organization to review the cases that are. It happened within the organization, the watchdog, the internal watchdog, and, and they're being effective. I mean, it's, it's a game changer in, in all in your work, both of you, don't you think? Absolutely. And it's, it was part of the, uh, we would have done this partnership anyways, but it's part of what made the timing for this partnership here in Missouri and in St. Louis so fantastic because we have a unique moment of opportunity here in St. Louis now our St. Louis City and our St. Louis County prosecutor's offices both have conviction integrity units. They call them by different names, but they both have them and they're both receiving significant funding. Um, And so to be able to collaborate and potentially have access to the files and potentially team up like Trisha has done in Lamar Johnson's case, it is absolutely a game changer. So speed up the timelines and make exonerations possible that without access to the prosecutor's files and potentially previously hidden evidence would have simply never been possible. Those and, people would have definitely stayed behind bars. And the testing that can happen, right? So it's what's in the files that we can't have access to. So everything we knew about the jailhouse informant here, right, was sitting in the prosecutor's file and they handed it over, which we wouldn't have been able to have if they hadn't given it over. And there's additional testing. So in this case, which was the murder-suicide case, right, no one had ever tested the gunshot residue. 
which showed that the only person with gunshot residue was um, the one of the victims, Kathleen Troll, and it was on her left hand and only her left hand. And you know, if we had wanted to do that and we didn't have cooperation, we would have had to litigate it. We may, may have already had to filed a petition to get discovery, to do all these different things. And that itself can take years. The prosecutor can just say, send it out, go test it, crime lab. And you know, you get it back right away. So it's just a completely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was going through your website, Trisha, I, I saw that you had another case, this Michael Polite, Polite? Polite. 14, another 14 year old. Um, you guys are doing amazing work. If any of our listeners, any of our viewers want to help, you know, I, I'm sure that you guys are based a lot on donations from private citizens. I'm sure you get a lot, hopefully you get a lot from your states and federal government, but how can people help you guys? Yeah, well, the biggest way for us is go to our website, which is www.themip.org, and you can learn about a bunch of different ways to participate. Our annual report is actually about to come out in our annual report, which will be also digital. Um, We will have different things that you can send to legislatures, things you can send to clients, things you can send um, to prosecutors, asking for them to look into creating conviction integrity units, asking them to um, provide funding for things like video conferencing um, for folks who are deaf and disabled so that they can adequately speak with their attorneys, right, and translate those things. Um, So, you know, we, every single thing that citizens do supports our work um, just by being vocal and sharing. Uh, And so if you want to go to our website, Follow us on Twitter, uh, go on Facebook, any of those things, you know, that's that's just a great way to keep uh, spreading the word. And I will say this, uh, first of all, I love that it's you had some great t-shirts and uh, sweatshirts on your website that I plan to buy. Uh, I got lots of the black. Buy the swag. The Michigan, not the Michigan, the um, from New York, the Innocence Project. I have the black shirts. I should have worn one today. Um, and I'm gonna make this pledge. You come to Michigan, you set up a shop in Michigan, and I will help. I'll help financially. I'll help um, emotionally. I'll help staff it. Um, We need. uh, We need. uh, We need one. Michigan, like U of M, is beyond great. I feel so lucky that they're here. But having an arm of of something like the like the MIP feels uh, more organized and uh, that that just it just seems like every state needs that. And I and I commend Mm -hmm. you for your work, Tricia. And, and Megan, tell me about how people could support the MacArthur Center. Um, well, we also you can go to our website, macarthurjustice.org, and there is a page for the Wrongful Conviction Project specifically there. So read about our project, read about our cases, but you know we are in partnership with MIP, so I encourage donations to MIP, and those will support our project as well. You have, um, do you have t-shirts yeah. in uh, your website or no? Good question. I'm ashamed to say I don't know off the top of my head. I know we have people, and if they're not on our website, they should be. So I'll work on that. Well, I know. Um, Go ahead. I did want to say, Mike, just about coming to Michigan, you know, I I think it's probably along down the line or unrealistic that we'll have like a brick and mortar shop there. But I wanted to make clear that we absolutely, I think Trisha referenced it, but we absolutely do partner with Michigan and with the University of Michigan. When I did Devante Sanford's case, I was an out-of-state attorney affiliated with the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth at Northwestern in Chicago, and we did it as co-counsel. So that possibility always exists that we may be on a case with Dave Moran and be helping a Michigan case. Um, And through the Innocence Network, we absolutely are always partnering on reform, pushes for reform and legislative advocacy. And so I think in some ways, 
U of M clinic is already an arm of, you know, the Innocence Project and the Midwest Innocence Project. And, like and the one thing I will just tag on to that is that the Innocence Network does also have a website, innocencenetwork.org, that you can go to and you can mm -hmm. learn not only about the Innocence organization that's in your region, so all of the members of the network are there. You can find out how to get to their website, find more about mm -hmm. them there you can see briefs that we file and it's sort of meekness briefs in front of the court's briefs the issues that we're looking at we celebrate wrongful conviction day together the conference that we host every year um so there's lots of great information no matter where you're at uh, at the innocence Network website and often one of the best ways to support is just be out there in the world on social media tweeting facebook posting about the cases that are really active and need voices to be loud and be heard on their behalf. And so that's a great way to help too. It's a really good point there, Megan, because you know we'll, we'll put all your stuff in our show notes. But one reason I do the show is these types of episodes is to just educate people because you don't know if somebody's gonna be a juror, mm -hmm. if somebody's gonna be charged with something, if somebody's gonna have be able to have some influence over something, if somebody's gonna be a witness of something and how important it is to realize that these problems are happening. And it does kind of feel, I don't want to know if I want to use the word groundswell yet. It does feel though that more and more convictions are being overturned and yeah. word is getting out there. And I don't know if you saw the guy, the gentleman on um, America's Got Talent who was, he was incarcerated for 30 years. Oh, I that made me cry that episode. I, every time I can't watch it too much. And, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I know some people who are representing him and, um, but it feels like it's out there more. Do you guys get the same sense that it's, is there a groundswell? I mean, I think it is. I think the biggest thing that is shocking to me is when students come up and say that this is what they want to do for a living. Like when, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm that old, but when I was in law school, that's not a thing you said. Right. And, and a lot mm -hmm. of us, most of us got into this um, through other avenues, right? A lot of us have been former death penalty attorneys. Uh, and I will say in our office, we often say, if you only wanna work just for innocence folks, um, it, this might not be the best job for you because it, mm -hmm. everything is more nuanced than people think it is. Even if you are only representing innocent folks, you know, there's a lot that comes with that and working into changing the criminal um, legal system. But, but I do think people are talking about it, students talk about it, folks talk about it in ways that you know, we used to be an aberration when you told somebody that what you were doing and people would be like, nobody's innocent in prison. And now people are like, oh, I just read about so-and-so on the news. Um, Dave Moran told me at lunch at uh, Zingerman's a few months ago. That people go to Michigan Law School because of the Innocence mm -hmm. Clinic. And I thought That's that amazing. was amazing. I actually have a senior in college in Wisconsin right now mm -hmm. who, who uh, I'm trying to talk to law school and she's like, well, dad, you know, the personal injury stuff, I'm not so sure, but if I can do some innocent stuff in your office and some civil rights stuff, maybe. Tell her to give us a call. Yeah, tell her to give us a call. We'll sell her on it. It doesn't take much to sell on and we all take externs all the time. So. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I'm I got your information. I'm going to be emailing you both. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We may have to do some follow-ups in the future when we have some more time, but thank you both for being here. It meant a lot. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for watching Open Mic. That was a interesting episode with Trisha Rojo Bushnell, the director of the Midwest Innocence Project, and Megan Crane of the MacArthur Justice Center. I learned a bunch. These people are doing amazing work for the Michigan Innocence Project.
uh, not the Michigan, the, Mi the Midwest Citizen Project. We need a Michigan Innocence Project. I was blown away by some of their stories. Please donate to the causes if you feel moved by any of these stories. Please share this episode with people who need to hear it. Subscribe to our show, like our show, email me, and I look forward to hearing from you and seeing you next time on Open Mic.